This is the gift that he decided to give the American people. What the hell is going on? Wrong. Wrong. Drugs? Wrong. Healthcare? Wrong. A wall? Wrong. Republicans? Wrong. Democrats? Wrong. Wrong. They're not Wrong. sending their best. Wrong. Best, best, best. Broadcasting from an undisclosed location. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 25 of your not always weekly, weekly breakdown of political news and current events from the perspective of liberty and logic. As you can probably tell from the audio, we've made some better arrangements since last week, but the quarantine continues. We hope everybody's holding up okay. We know this is a weird time and kind of a pain in the ass for all of us, so we appreciate you listening. We've actually tried to take advantage of some of the downtime and work on some upcoming things and I've even done a little more design work on the website, which we hope to have back up soon. Before we get to the obvious COVID talk, I wanted to discuss a couple other things. In the short update I did last week, I mentioned a Maryland man named Duncan Lamp. According to the original statement from Montgomery County Police, at around 4.30 a.m. on March 12th, members of the Special Operations Division Tactical Unit were in process of serving a high-risk search warrant related to firearms offenses. During the warrant service, the suspect, later identified as Duncan Socrates Limp, age 21, was fatally shot by an officer. So, obviously fucked up regardless, but they at least make it sound rather straightforward. But, of course, it's rarely that simple. There's not a lot we can say that we know for certain, but Limp, by all accounts, was brilliant. His personal website lists a lot of skills ranging from coding to circuitry to cryptocurrency. He lived at home with his parents and his 19-year-old brother, and he was apparently in bed with his girlfriend when all this went down. In a follow-up statement, they mentioned that Limp was prohibited from possessing firearms, but they don't immediately mention why that might be. It's not until much later, after the story really started to spread, that they say it's due to a criminal history as a juvenile. And again, they're not specific, but he's not allowed to possess or purchase firearms in the state of Maryland until he turns 30. And we also can't find a definitive reason that he would be under that restriction. I've talked to a couple people that had similar restrictions for very minor offenses, but then one had committed a more major crime. So I don't really want to speculate what the original issue was or why they thought he might be such a dangerous individual now. It was also originally said that the warrant was served after a complaint from the public. Well, according to the MCP, that was actually an anonymous tip that came in at the beginning of the year, saying that Limp was in possession of weapons. It's very possibly related to posts on his Instagram from January 23rd. Uh, There's pictures of a couple rifles showing off some custom hentai magazines. But then the real question is, if the tip came in early in January... Why wait three months to obtain a no-knock warrant? If it wasn't important enough to handle in January, why was it so important to kick in a dude's door at 4.30 in the morning? Police seized uh, those two rifles plus one additional. There were two handguns. And if you know anything about guns, there's nothing particularly special or dangerous about any of these guns. Now, if you don't, or if all your gun knowledge comes from watching the news then yes, these rifles were all terrifying assault weapons capable of total genocide with just one pull of the trigger. So again, none of that explains why the police responded in the way they did 
or why they seem to think that Limp was such a threat. Going through Limp's social media, uh, in addition to the pictures of the guns on Instagram, there are several mentions of Six Semper Tyrannus, which thus always to tyrants, for those that don't remember history class. There's a screenshot from something called the Boogaloo Network, and there are pictures from December that appear to show him with a group of three percenters in Kentucky. The three percenters are a group of uh, self-described patriots that get together for kind of a militia-esque training, though they're always quick to point out that they're not actually a militia. So I don't see anything that would present Duncan Limp as any sort of an extremist or a threat to anyone. I mean, he was clearly a dissenter of sorts, but I couldn't find anything even vaguely threatening. And even if you think that the three percenters are a militia, they're a very statist sort. So they're not exactly the overthrowing type. According to a statement from the family by way of their lawyer, the warrant gave no indication that this was at all high risk or that he was an imminent threat. But according to Montgomery County, a pre-dawn assault is standard practice for these kinds of things, which in itself is ridiculous and a little terrifying. The family also claims that Limp was in bed asleep at the time and that the police had fired on him from outside the house. However, the police say that a witness, which presumably would have to be the girlfriend, even claims that Limp was standing up when he was shot. The family's lawyer contends that physical evidence will eventually back up their story. Another interesting point to this story, though. Other than the posts involving guns that he should or shouldn't have had and boogaloo references, there isn't a lot of outside indicators. I mean, from posts or statements from friends and family. Nothing gives the impression that Limp was that intense. Like, again, which, you know, is the question of why the cops wanted to throw down like they did. But apparently Limp did have some level of, I don't want to say paranoia. Let's say he had at least some expectation that something could go down at some point. According to various accounts, there are apparently two doors into the bedroom where he was gunned down. There's one interior door, obviously. And then there was also an exterior door where you could enter the house directly to his bedroom. Now, that's not the door where the cops came in. They came in through the main door of the house. Whether that's just standard procedure or not, I'm not really sure. But had they gone for the direct entrance, they would have found a little surprise. Duncan Limp had apparently rigged a booby trap on that door that would have fired a single shotgun shell toward the intruder. And I have no way of knowing what kind of intruder he expected. But I wonder if the police knew about it beforehand. Because if they did, and that's the reason they didn't come in through that door, it would certainly narrow down the list of possible anonymous tippers. Maybe it was just a case of, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not coming to get you. Either way, the whole situation just reeks of bullshit. At the very least, this operation was as straightforward as the Montgomery County Police say it was, in which case it's just another death attributed to overeager, militarized police and gun laws that outright endanger gun owners and anyone apparently sleeping in the vicinity. At the other end of that spectrum, things are much worse and probably more likely to just be chalked up to internet conspiracy theory. The truth more than likely will be somewhere in the middle, and it's going to be a while before we know much more. And let's be honest, by the time anything else does come out, the story will be old news and the police will be cleared of any wrongdoing. Documents, including police reports and the original search warrant, won't be publicly available for at least 30 days, and no one involved in the investigation is talking until it's officially settled. Limp's family is demanding the release of body cam footage, but we've been through this enough to know that that never happens as quickly as it should. 
And not to mention, there's a fair chance that none of them had body cameras. Many tactical units don't wear them. And even if they did have them, were they even turned on? As is frequently the real issue? The upside, if there is any, is that Maryland is supposed to keep detailed records of all SWAT activities, given their long history of fucking shit up. But I'm not holding out a lot of hope for actual justice in this story. And we're definitely going to track this story and get whatever information we can. But for right now, all we really have are questions. Limp's family say that they heard no commands or warnings before Duncan was shot. Is that the case, or is this just another danger of smashing into a family's home in the middle of the night and expecting them to be fully aware of everything that's happening? It's said that Limp was found to be in possession of a rifle after he was shot. Does that mean he was holding it, or that it was just found in the room where they killed him? Many people online that at least knew Limp in some passive way have speculated that this ordeal may be connected to the Boogaloo Network that I mentioned. The rumor is is that it was a secure site that Limp was working on to be a safe place for people that share his political or at least pro-gun sentiments. Is that the case? Or was this just more needless violence in the vein of red flag laws? And to be clear, this was not officially a red flag operation, but without a source, it's hard to say how close it is. Either way, a man is dead, and there's no ending to the story that makes that fact any better. There's no reasoning that justifies that or that doesn't add to the disdain that many of us have for the system. Somewhat fittingly, Limp's last tweet back in December just read, The Constitution is dead. And then, just today as I was working on this, Limp's girlfriend, who was with him when he died, tweeted, I am consumed with mourning. It's a state almost worse than death itself. Watching the father of your unborn child brutally murdered in front of you by the people that you're supposed to call on for help. It makes the pandemic look like a piece of cake. The apocalypse is now. And I don't even really know what else you can say to that. Let's move on. Okay, let's lighten the mood a little bit with something a little less serious. Marvel Comics is bringing back the New Warriors comic series. Why? I have no idea. The series has never been that great, and with the exception of the first run from 90 to 96, it never lasted more than a year or so. I mean, I was a comic nerd back in the day, but The New Warriors was just never that interesting to me. It's one of those books that was always like the junior superheroes dealing with whatever bullshit. And not that there aren't any good ones, but most are a little cringy. This one is no different, I promise you. So why are we talking about it on here? Well, first off, I find this whole thing funny. But also, there's a bit of controversy around two of the brand new characters. Marvel, with their finger on the pulse of the youth culture, knows that identity politics are all the rage and that the time is perfect for the first non-binary superhero. And you know, whatever. Makes no difference to me. Do what you do. But maybe don't call them Snowflake and Safe Space. Yes, that's a real thing. I didn't believe it either when I first read about it but I am now getting this off of Marvel's official website. They are apparently psychic twins. Snowflake, a cryokinetic, can materialize snowflake-shaped shuriken projectiles for throwing. Safe Space can materialize pink force fields, but he can't inhabit them himself. The reflex only works if he's protecting others. They are hyper-aware of modern culture and optics, and they see their superheroics as a post-ironic meditation on using violence to combat bullying. 
and they're probably streaming this. Holy shit, that sounds awful. While much of the internet seemed to find great amusement in these unfortunate editions, the loudest protests actually came from members of the LBGT community, who, to put it lightly, don't see the humor in the names. Though the new writer, Dan Kibblesmith, who created these new characters, claims that the idea is that these are terms that get thrown around on the internet and that they don't see them as derogatory. They take those words and kind of wear them as badges of honor. That doesn't seem to be making any of this better. Now, those are definitely the most uh, politically charged, shall we say. So they're getting all the attention. But they are not the only poorly developed ideas on the team. There's also Trailblazer. She's a larger girl with a magic backpack that apparently has a pocket dimension with seemingly infinite space. And she claims to get this power from God, but not the God you're thinking of. Whatever that means. She's a group home and foster kid who is volunteering at a senior center when a mysterious threat shows up. Uh, goodness. Kibble Smith says she's called Trailblazer because she charges into action. So, apparently unrelated to the Chevy SUV of the same name. There's also a vampire called B-Negative. Get it? Be negative. See, it's a blood pun because he's a vampire. Very similar to Morbius the Living Vampire, except that he still ages like a regular kid. And according to Marvel, he's also obsessed with all the music and attitude of classic long past decades like the 90s and the 2000s. The world is a vampire, and so am I. I'm glad Stan Lee isn't alive to see this. And I mean, not that Marvel hasn't had loads of terrible characters in its history. I mean, anybody remember Dazzler? Or Jubilee? Don't at me. Okay, last one. And this one is my favorite. His name is Screen Tom. Because we're really swinging for the fences with hip, relatable topics for kids. Screen Tom is a meme-obsessed super teen whose brain became connected to the internet after becoming exposed to his grandfather's experimental internet gas. Internet gas. Is that gas from the internet? For the internet? The fuck is internet gas? Now he can see augmented reality and real-time maps, and he can instantly Google any fact. You know, Kibblesmith is only 36, I think, so these characters make him sound much older. Kibblesmith says, I wanted to have teen characters who felt as now as the New Warriors did in 1990. The New Warriors have been zitgeist characters from the beginning. You get edgy skateboarding Night Thrasher in the 90s and the reality TV team in the 2000s. And now in 2020, we have New Warriors who have never grown up without the internet and one character who appears to essentially live inside it. Maybe those ultra-trendy characters from books that got shit-canned a year later isn't exactly a recipe you want to copy. But whatever. Marvel has been dealing with declined readership for a while now, and I get that they're trying to be cool and trendy or whatever, but this is just unsettling. My issue isn't even with any of the political stuff, though I will say that that rarely plays out in the long run, but it's more about the feel of it. It's like if Captain America suddenly just started calling everybody dog. It's not that it's wrong in any particular way, it's just fucking weird. You're the man now, dog! On to the obvious. At least 19 states so far have some sort of statewide stay-at-home order, and another 16 have restrictions in at least some areas of the state. It might even be the reason that you're sitting there listening to me, 
instead of doing whatever else you'd rather do. The restrictions also range in severity because some states have just asked everyone to stay home or asked non-essential businesses to close, and other states have actually made it official with orders to do so. And then a lot of places are leaving takeout restaurants open, which, I mean, is great for those of us that still want to eat out and for those employees that can still make a little bit of money that way. But it just seems odd that certain governors are pressing the issue about how dangerous this is, but then it's still okay if you want Applebee's. And for the Alex Jones wannabes on Facebook, still no martial law. Half a dozen times a day, someone posts another picture, usually just military equipment on a train or some guy in fatigues just standing on a sidewalk. And they use this as evidence that the shit is about to go down. Most of the time it's an old photo, but then sometimes it's just the National Guard passing out supplies. And to be clear, I don't make that point because I'm so sure that the government would never do that. It's just stupid to keep putting it out there with zero verification. I mean, one, always check your facts. It's really easy to do. Secondly, realize how big of a deal some real hardcore movie style martial law would be. I mean, it's totally possible, but it's a big hand to play. The lead-up would be much more serious, and it would be a turning point for the country as a whole. So the benefits to those in charge would have to be clear and worth the fallout. And this just isn't it. But plenty of things are still being disrupted. At least 13 states have pushed back their primary dates. Not really seen as a huge deal since Joe Biden became the inevitable nominee, but there are a lot of down-ballot contests that could easily be impacted. There are Senate primary runoffs set in Alabama and Texas that will now have to be rescheduled. There's runoffs in North Carolina and Mississippi that have already been pushed back. Several states have decided to move to all mail ballots instead. And it's an easy move for Alaska and Hawaii and Wyoming because they already do a chunk of their voting by mail. But other states aren't capable of going that route, at least not on such short notice. Uh, Maryland rescheduled voting for the specific reason that they wouldn't be able to handle the amount of mail-in ballots they would get by April 28th. Ohio, who had already pulled out of their original spot on March 17th, uh, is pushing for vote by mail, even on their new date. And while a lot of people have voiced concern that the November election could be postponed or even canceled, that's pretty close to impossible. I mean, mostly because they just can't really do that. But even if they could, the president's term ends on January 20th regardless. And the chain reaction that it would cause from order of succession to the bizarre list of technicalities, I mean, would cause people to just lose their minds. If it did look like something like that might happen, the more realistic scenario is that the election would just go to something like mail-in ballots, which in itself would cause a lot of issues. People already love to argue over the validity of results and speculate over the shady influences of foreign countries. And I mean, you put ballots through the mail, as reliable as the mail is, that creates plenty of gray area to support any number of weird conspiracy theories people would come up with. The 2020 Olympics in Tokyo have been put on hold for the foreseeable future, and that's a first in Olympic history. The games have been canceled before, uh, once for World War I and twice for World War II, but they've never been postponed. Now, I presume that this will not change the dates for any future games, but I don't know. What I do know is that this is going to be an enormous pain in the ass for Japan. I mean, there's a reason these cities get picked so far in advance. It takes a tremendous amount of effort and organization to put all these games together. And in most cases, you are literally building the complexes just so crowds of people can come watch these various sports. You have to bring in support staff, plan for food, housing, and a dozen other areas just for the athletes. 
You have to schedule everything down to the most precise detail and practice it until you can reflexively run an already complicated multi-day event so that it runs flawlessly. And then now you have to scrap about half of it and wait an entire year to try it again. And Japan has already spent like $12 billion to put all this together. And there's no telling how much this setback is going to cost. And then there are logistical issues. Some of these sports have other competitions. The world championships of things like swimming and track take place a year after the Olympics. So if the Olympics are now pushed back, presumably close to exactly a year, what does that mean for those other competitions? It's a huge mess, and the Olympic Committee was originally pretty set against moving the games at all. But after a while, it was pretty obvious that the coronavirus wasn't going away anytime soon, and countries eventually started announcing that even if the games went on, they weren't going to send any of their athletes. And while those are just some of the larger effects of the corona apocalypse, obviously the much more prevalent problem is the part where everyone starts getting sick. And while being quarantined in a mansion might be a lot more fun, it doesn't mean that only the poors are getting sick. From Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson to Kevin Durant, Sophie Trudeau, the wife of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, has it and may have passed it on to Idris Elba in a way that I can only speculate was purely innocent and coincidental. <coughs> Daniel Day Kim, Andy Cohen, some asshole from The Bachelor, Jackson Brown, Prince Charles, and Boris Johnson all tested positive. And that's just to name a few. It's not a huge surprise, given that the number of cases is going up pretty fast. But to be clear, there's a lot of danger of misinterpretation in these charts that people keep sharing. Most of the ones I've seen, both on social media and from news services, they don't make the distinction between the rate of infection and the rate of detection. If I told you that there were 400 cases yesterday and then 1,000 today, clearly that's not good. But what does that really mean? Is it spreading faster or are we just finding out faster who has it? There's also a lot of problems with the Italy comparison. Several graphs track the death rate in Italy versus America and they vaguely speculate that we would be on the same path merely 11 days behind. And that chart is fine if all you're really trying to show is that this is a real concern and that people should pay attention, but it's a shallow data pool if your goal is to really understand what is happening and how. For one, the 11-day lag is the approximate time between Italy's outbreak and the one in the U.S. As a general rule, uh, an outbreak is when you cross 100 confirmed cases. So there's the first issue. Without proper testing, there's no way to know how many people had the virus or when the virus showed up. Only when we confirm 100 cases. If you've been watching the news at all, you know that there's a huge debate over the rate of testing that's been happening in the U.S. and whether or not it's being efficiently done. I mean, you can test those that are most likely sick, those that have traveled or been around someone who has tested positive. But beyond that, it gets pretty sketchy. It can take anywhere from 2 to 10 days from being exposed to feeling sick and that's if you show symptoms at all. If you do, how long do you think could pass between not feeling well to either suspecting COVID or at least feeling bad enough that you went to the hospital? Then even if they do a test, it takes a few more days to get a result. So there are a lot of variables here. Not to mention that when discussing the mortality rate, it doesn't factor in all of the people who never had symptoms and thus never got checked. Then there's a difference in population and demographics. Italy has something like 62 million people to the U.S.'s 329 million. And Italy's is much older, which may be part of the reason that Italy is seeing such a higher death toll even compared to other countries. 
These numbers are a few days old now, but earlier I was trying to find some answers as to why this might be, and I found out that out of about 64,000 cases in Italy, a little over 6,000 had died. Whereas out of the 81,500 cases in China led to only 3,200 deaths. So roughly that's 9% versus 4% respectively. And for frame of reference, Germany has about 29,000 cases and only 118 deaths. That's a fatality rate of less than half of 1%. In addition to the general age difference in population, there are also a couple other key differences in the data at the hospital. According to Professor Walter Ricciardi, and I am only guessing I said that right, he's a scientific advisor to the Minister of Health in Italy. The average age of patients runs high in Italy. The average age of a hospital patient in Italy is 67, where in China it's only 46. And he also says that the way doctors note deaths could skew the overall tally as well. Apparently, if you die in a hospital where they are treating a number of COVID patients, your death may just get lumped in with the rest. And I guess that's easier than figuring out if you died of the ailment you came in for or if you caught something else while you were there. So if the only way to get definitive information is to have more tests, why aren't we doing that? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Most of them bureaucratic in nature. For starters, the CDC is generally the only organization trusted enough to handle such things. So to use their tests, they have to approve your lab and then send you the appropriate kits. Once you make it that far, you have to hope that they send you all the parts you need. In the beginning, many of the kits they sent out didn't work, and the CDC had to remanufacture a failed reagent that is necessary for the tests to work. So what about other labs just coming up with their own tests? Well, many attempted to do just that, but then comes the FDA. When dealing with the government, everything has to be done in one certain way, and that is rarely in the name of efficiency. Normally, during an outbreak like this, the FDA could clear other labs to use their own tests for the sake of casting a wider net. I mean, they've done it before, you know, with issues like Ebola and Zika. This time, where things are spreading much faster and causing much more widespread issues, they took weeks to grant approval to even begin testing. Then there are supply problems. To make a reliable test, you have to know what you're looking for. That means having a sample of the actual virus. And when dealing with countries like China, who refuse to send samples across their border, that can take up a lot of valuable time. Then there are the issues of plain old supply shortages. Swabs, masks, gowns, everything is getting harder to come by for clinics, hospitals, and labs across the country. Several medical workers have said that they're reusing supplies or only using them in very high-risk scenarios. That not only puts them in danger, but it greatly increases the chances of spreading the infection to other patients. And while everyone wants to argue about whose fault the shortage is and point fingers, this has apparently been a risk for years. We're just now seeing it in action. The federal government has since ordered 500 million masks, but as you would expect from big government, they could take up to 18 months to get here. So basically what we have here is a serious failure of the bloated bureaucracy that is the federal government to properly handle a fast-moving issue like the coronavirus. Less red tape and more efficient communication could have totally changed the game here. And before we wrap up, it looks like the House has now passed the $2 trillion stimulus package. And while I'm sure that there's going to be continued debate, I don't see a scenario where Trump doesn't sign it. I don't have all the details here, but the package does give a one-time payout of $1,200 to individuals and $2,400 to married couples. I'm not sure how they're deciding who qualifies and in what order. 
Uh, at best, they could use the 2018 tax returns. Because especially with the 2019 being pushed back, there's a lot of people who haven't even filed taxes this year. The package also expands unemployment benefits. Apparently, it gives an extra $600 per week, and it would also cover people like furloughed employees and gig workers like Uber drivers. There's also $100 billion for hospitals, which makes sense given the current situation. Money for small businesses and local governments that have lost revenue is also included. There's bailout money in here, too. There's $500 billion to help corporations, and I'm not sure what all that includes, but $58 billion is going to the airlines. And I, know, I think I saw the cruise ships are getting nothing. And I'll say this, too, about the airlines. It would be devastating in a lot of ways if we suddenly had no convenient air travel. Like, I get the importance of it. However, if you need $60 billion in help for an issue that's been going on for such a brief period of time, you know, maybe there's a better way. Maybe you're just not good at this. And the same goes for cruise lines, but, I mean, they obviously matter a lot less. I don't like the government propping up any corporation or industry. I mean, either make it or don't. Now, if the government wanted to cut their taxes or give them back what they've already paid, I'm not so much against that because I support that for everybody. But I think that's pretty much going to do it for this week. Again, we appreciate everybody listening from whatever quarantine zone you may find yourself in. Even more so if you're one of those snazzy essential workers. As always, if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at the Common Sense Underground page on Facebook. If you'd like to get a hold of me personally, I am the B Parsons on Twitter. Although I have spent much of my quarantine time away from Twitter. Hopefully the website will be up very soon. Stay safe, wash your hands, and we'll talk to you next week. Guess what, bees? This isn't freedom. Freedom. Damn you! Damn you!